Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost we have Nathan Adler, artist and writer, author of the horror novel Wrist, and editor of the upcoming anthology Bawajigan, Stories of Power, an anthology of fiction by Indigenous writers. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, and you also are going to be uh, joining us in a couple of weeks for a discussion on Indigenous representation and horror. So I'm really excited to have you on before that just to talk about yourself and your work. So why don't we just dive right in? Tell us about yourself and what you do. All right. Uh, so my name is Nathan Adler. My Anishinaabe name is uh, Negan Noden. I'm a member of the Lactamalat First Nation in northwestern Ontario, uh, but I grew up in like Orangeville in southern Ontario. And uh, I'm a writer and artist and filmmaker. And uh, yeah, I have a novel called Wrist, W-R-I-S-T. It's an uh, indigenous monster story uh, written from the monster's perspective. I also have like several short stories published in different anthologies. And so, do you primarily write horror, or is that just you know one of your genres? I'd say my work verges on like the horror, but um, it's probably closer to like urban fantasy than it is to horror. Like, there's like that crossover between like horror, urban fat, and fantasy. So, yeah. mine's probably a little bit closer to the urban fantasy, but it has like elements of like the gothic and the dark, like really dark kind of stuff that kind of nudges it closer to horror, but it's not like solid horror. It's like in between horror and urban fantasy sort of. Gotcha. I've been really fascinated by the discussions in the past, I don't know, six months or so when people are like, urban fantasy is dead. <laughs> is it? Uh, no, obviously, because the interesting response, of course, is, well, wait a minute, let's just say that hopefully white urban fantasy is dead. But you know, there are other people out there also writing urban fantasy about lots of different things other than vampires and werewolves. Yeah, it's fun when you stumble across a genre that you never thought of before, too, like the supernatural detective. I remember that was pretty popular. And then, and then recently I stumbled on like, the post-apocalyptic western which, which is urban fantasy and then that that's i've read like two books that are post-apocalyptic western novels and i'm like this is a genre i've never kind of like read that much it's like a little bit mad max-ish and yeah until just now i had never heard of post-apocalyptic western but like the really fascinating thing to me is watching of course writers from marginalized communities coming in and injecting their own stories version of the western <laughs> right their own versions yeah, and obviously sure. the western particularly for indigenous 
people is fairly problematic. Yeah. <laughs> so putting those additional spins on it and, and dissecting the portions that are problematic, I think are really fascinating and important thing that writers are now doing and probably have been doing this entire time, but luckily you guys are getting published and, you know, a little bit more visible. Yeah, there's a ton of, like, awesome writers, like Native writers, Indigenous writers getting published now, which is a lot more than they used to in anyway. Right. And, well, at least for me, Twitter definitely helps with the visibility aspect. So I'm able to connect with those writers, and writers are able to connect with audiences that might be interested in something that isn't your typical vampire or werewolf story. Uh, I like typical vampire werewolf stories, too. I mean, they're great. <laughs> They're fun, but like... But there's also other things, yeah. The industry tends to forget sometimes, I think. But that brings me to Rift. You wrote a story from the point of view of a monster. So in the first place, what made you choose that point of view? And what's the monster? Uh, The monster is the Wendigo, which is like a traditional kind of like creature monster in in Anishinaabe kind of like stories. Pretty popular kind of figure in traditional stories and... I, I was really a big fan of, like, stories written from the monster's perspective, like va- vampire stories, like Anne Rice and, like, Clyde Barker and just the whole horror genre I'm a fan of and urban fantasy a lot, too. So when it came time to, like, write my own monster, I was like, well, what kind of monster do I do I want to write about? And it's like, well, I didn't want to write a vampire story because that's all written from... That, that's like a European folklore monster. So that made me think, oh, well, well, why don't I use like a monster from indigenous folklore? Like, um, and that, the one that I, I was thinking of, the Wendigo, which is, I hadn't read very many stories written from the Wendigo's perspective. So, and that's kind of not that I thought about it in those kind of like terms as I was working. It, it's just kind of, that's just sort of what happened. And I didn't plan it or know what the hell I was doing when I was writing. It just, but can, Back, I can kind of see my thought press process and how how I kind of evolved, but at the time I didn't really know where, how things were going or where the story was going or anything like that. So one of the interviews I read about Wrist mentioned the fact that that Wendigo was actually a psychological disorder that people were actually tried for. Yeah, yeah. How did you incorporate that into the story? Um, well, I just did a. A lot of research. Um, also, I contacted um, this academic, uh, Nathan Carlson. He's an academic, and he's written all kinds of artic- historical articles. And uh, one of his ancestors was, like, uh, had Wendigo psychosis. And he, so he did all this research into that history, which is, like, a real medical, you know, history. So I, so I, con- I actually contacted him on I sent a friend in him and sent him a message and and then he sent me some of his articles, and I read them, and then I looked at his, like, um, bibliographies, and I, re- I tra- tracked down his sources and read those, and I just did a bunch of research, and I, and I, I drew heavily on his, his research as well, just to help inform my storytelling, and, and, and it, it did come in through the book. Yeah, because there's, like, the the monster uh, uh, in folklore, which is, like, traditional stories, uh, kind of, like, myths sort of thing, and then there's, like, this other whole other like layer of like people actually believing that windows exist and or, or believing that it was such a big part of the culture at one time that people thought they could 
be become an, uh, be infected by this like sickness and become a Wendigo themselves. Like that was the, the the belief, and that it was like considered a culture bound disorder. So um, um, only people from this one particular culture were affected by the disorder. So yeah, it's called Wendigo psychosis in psychological terms and in psychology. Um, but like Nathan Carlson, his his academic kind of writing, he he said that from within the culture it made sense as a as a diagnosis, but from outside it it looks different when you're examining something from the outside when you're not within that culture. That's really interesting. So I'm curious because you're both Anishinaabe and Jewish. Yeah. So how does sort of the intersection of those two identities inform your work specifically in horror, if at all? Oh, no, it totally does. It's, it's unavoidable. It's like, yeah, I can't escape like that past, my, like who I am, who my family is. So it's totally in my writing. It's, it, it's not even like subtle. It's like if you, if you know what you're looking for, it's like very obvious that it's there. So in what way? I think specifically the theme, the, the theme of trauma in, in risk in particular, I was, I was thinking a lot about identity and like, and I was thinking about like residential school and the Holocaust and this, all this stuff my relatives and ancestors have been through. And, and that's in the book, like that, that kind of dealing with historic trauma and like, yeah, and like all my characters are like really traumatized. They all have some sort of trauma and then, even like the, the themes of like Wendigo and colonialism, that's all about trauma. Right. And, and you would say that both sides of your identity play into that? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I didn't use like a golem, which would have been like a traditional like Jewish monster, but maybe that, maybe that'll be my next story. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but one of the characters is like a Holocaust survivor and has like numbers on his arm and like so it's it's definitely there and why do you think horror is a i don't know uniquely suited to exploring things like trauma or other issues i don't know if it's uniquely suited to exploring it any more than any other genre but i mean you can is it just something that you just liked horror so that's what you got into or do you think that it lets you do things that you can't do or don't feel like you can do in other genre subset. Well, I guess like literary fiction is supposed to be more like, I don't know, proper or not. A, you can't like play around as much with, with horror. You don't have to be as serious almost like with literary fiction. It's almost like it's on like this pedestal that you have to tackle serious issues. And um, I think with other like genre fiction, you're not expected to be like so proper or yeah, you don't, you're, you're not, you don't have to be so serious, ta- like tackling super serious issues, which I do anyway, but, um, but there's, there's like a certain freedom in not being bound to like certain rules and you can do whatever you want. Really. For sure. So tell me a little bit more about some of your other work. So I mentioned the anthology that you're going to be editing that's coming up. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, I know the submission, like I said earlier, is coming up on close. Actually, it probably will have just closed Ah, when this is released. It may be extended. Uh, maybe uh, I'm still talking with the publisher, but 
Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But the, currently, the the deadline is October first. It, it, it may go have one more extension on the deadline, but we'll see. Gotcha. So if it does have an extension, what type of thing are you looking for? Um, so we're looking for stories by Indigenous writers. They could could be on in any genre. It could be horror. It could be romantic comedy. It could be erotica. It could be urban fantasy or anything really, uh, any genre um, of storytelling, um, and uh, even gra- graphic forms like comic book kind of stuff. That would be great too. And uh, the theme is dreams, which is a pretty wide open theme. It sounds great. That will be hopefully available in, what, January, March, somewhere around there? We're thinking May 2018, so next year. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just looking forward to reading all the stories and editing stories and working with all the writers. And I'm curious what you think, because... Obviously, this is a, it's a step in the right direction that publishers are getting behind um, anthologies and whatnot and publishing more Indigenous writers. But what is a way that the publishing industry can better support marginalized writers in, gen- in general, but Indigenous writers specifically? I know you got a grant to write Wrist, which is so awesome. And yay, Canada, for that one thing, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the the, uh, the our Ontario Arts Council and Canada Arts Council provides like funding for artists and writers, and you have to apply for it, and then you have to fill out grant reports, and you have to show that you've actually done things, and you have to sometimes you have to submit like receipts to prove that you've done the things that you said you were going to do. And so there's a lot of hoops to jump through for the money. It's not just like yeah, if you might know, it's like, but um, but yeah, it's good that there is some funding and it's pretty competitive too so right i can imagine but what so what about the publishing industry how, how can they better support indigenous writers uh hiring indigenous editors is a good start it is <laughs> for sure <laughs> um it, 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 yeah if you have to work with if you're an indigenous writer and you're working with an indigenous editor there's a big difference i know from experiences of writer working with different editors and sometimes you come across you, yeah it just it doesn't help if you're work if you're working with an indigenous editor for sure it's just that sometimes it's just tiresome to have to explain basic things to people when they're just like clueless and it's not even just like it just some people just don't know right and and you can't really fault people for being well i, well, I guess you can't but some people just don't <laughs> So yeah, so sometimes you're just like, oh my god, I can't believe to explain this. And it it just and they're meanwhile, and it just like often it just they don't they don't know any better, and you have to explain it to them, and then they try to justify their point of view, and then it becomes like a a debate over like something that should be obvious, and but and then that's something you hopefully should not have to do with a indigenous editor who should probably know better from personal experience and yeah that makes sense so before we close why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you and your work okay so i have you can find my work in risk which is uh, uh published by kegadoss press um which is a small publisher in uh um in ontario um you can also find it on on amazon or chapters or order it from a small bookstore even better um and you can also find my my uh, some of my short stories in uh 
Love Beyond Body, Space, and Time. It's an indigenous LGBT sci-fi anthology, and it's edited by Hope Nicholson, and it's published by Bedside Press. Uh, you can also find my work in XL Edition anthologies, uh, The Playground of Lost Toys, and uh, Those Who Make Us, uh, Canadian Creature, Myth, and Monster Stories. You can also check out my blog, which is uh, Nathan Adler blog, wordpress.com, and and also, I write stuff for Shameless magazines sometimes, and other, and Kimelon Zine, and other magazines and zines. That... Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Nathan, and I look forward to hearing uh, the discussion that we have planned next week, too. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on Signal Booth. Go check out Nathan Adler's work, and maybe buy a copy of Rest. Ingrid, bye, Maki. Bye. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost, we have Darcy Little Badger, a Lapan Apache scientist and writer, with stories in Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, Mythic Delirium, Love Beyond Body, Space, and Time, and the second volume of Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection. Welcome to the show, Darcy. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. So let's dive right into this. Tell us about yourself and what you do. Well, uh, I am a scientist. Uh, specifically, I got my dissertation by studying the genetics of a phytoplankton species that produces toxins. But I am also a science fiction, fantasy, and horror writer. I do consider myself a writer in the indigenous futurism's vein. But really, the, the stories that I've produced have covered a, a wide range of genres. I just had a story coming out that Somebody has described as indigenous gothic. It's like a Victorian ghost story with two Apache sisters on an island. But on the other hand, uh, my story in the anthology Love Beyond Body, Space and Time is a uh, science fiction romance uh, between two women en route to Mars. And there's this big accident that releases uh, 40 chihuahuas and a husky inside the spaceship. So I, I really I enjoy humor. I enjoy horror, uh, science fiction, fantasy infusion of all of the, the genres together. I'm also a comic writer. So uh, you mentioned my comic uh, Worst Bargain in Town in the Moonshot Anthology. I do have some comics coming out in a couple of other um, anthologies edited by uh, Elizabeth LeVent. And they are hopefully coming out in the next year. Uh, one is published by Native Realities, which is essentially it's a comic con uh, company that is run, edited, and has creators who are Native. Another one is a kind of a biographical comic that I actually had the opportunity to illustrate myself. So I'm pretty excited for that one. Ooh, that is exciting. And <laughs> so it's like a run through of the things I've done creatively and scientifically. <laughs> so basically everything. Yeah, and, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that you studied specifically phytoplankton that produce toxins because that's like the most horrifying thing I think I can think of. Yeah, and uh, the blooms in the Gulf of Mexico are becoming gradually more frequent. So we have that to look forward to. <laughs>
I had a question for like right now, which would dovetail perfectly, but I first want you to tell me about the term indigenous futurism, which I have not heard before. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was coined by Grace Dillon, and it's a way to speak about a body of literature and art that is being put out by indigenous, uh, in my case, Native American writers and artists. Uh, and it, it's not quite science fiction, although it's, it's often linked with science fiction because of similarities. But it is almost an incorporation of how our our history and our future and our contemporary influence each other. Uh, so it is a really a fascinating body of work, and I'm, I'm really honored to contribute to it. But I do recommend that anybody who wants to really delve in just to, to Google the term and start reading other Native writers who have been doing this Indigenous Futurism. Awesome. I will definitely do that, and hopefully our listeners will too. And you mentioned the story that you had come out what, just a couple days ago, the whalebone parrot in, what is it, the Dark Magazine, correct? right? So I'm still a little bit emotional about it. That's an absolutely beautiful story. And I cried for a solid five minutes after reading it. So thanks for that. As you say, it's a kind of indigenous gothic story. So I'm hoping you can kind of tell me more about the story and the histories that inspired it. And I have to say, uh, before I get into that question, I said somebody called it indigenous gothic. It's actually Another writer, uh, Rebecca Roanhorse. I hope I hope I got your last name right, Rebecca. Uh, just wanted to give her credit for <laughs> coining that phrase like yesterday. <laughs> anyway, I, I pretty much love it. <laughs> that's that's a great phrase, and yeah. I, I you may have just birthed the genre. So you know, oh my gosh, that would be <laughs> awesome. Just because I love reading that stuff, but but yes, the the whalebone parrot. Actually, I I, I think it's probably the most personal story I've written. And that, that's hard to say because a lot of the stories that I write do draw from things that are either personal to me or personal to my tribe. Uh, but this one in particular, it what I call a Victorian ghost story uh, with Apache characters. It's different from a Western because it does take place New England on an island in the Atlantic uh, and not in the West of the country. Oh, I can't I can't read Westerns. There's too many with Apache people in them. I was like, ugh. But it, it does take place during the probably the the height of the genocide against my tribe, which was the, the late 1800s. And it kind of petered out during the early 1900s. Uh, it's an interesting story with a lot of different threads, but it does follow the experience of one character named Emily, who is an orphan of the Lipon extermination. After the Civil War, actually, the U.S. federal government really turned the full force of their amped up military power into the removal of Apache people. Uh, the Lipan Apache, most of us chose to either fight against this removal or to, to hide and kind of try to blend in um, with either other people in southern Texas or northern New Mexico. Uh, essentially, we were, we were using cultural assimilation as a tool to, to protect ourselves. I mean, we, we couldn't speak our language or practice our spiritual uh, spirituality in public uh, without you know, potentially either being killed or being forced into a reservation. So that's the context of this. And it was it was inspired because I I am trying to learn the lip on language. But unfortunately, it's a dying language. There are huge chunks of it that are missing and, and probably lost forever. 
actually, the last person in my family line who was fluently knowledgeable in Lipan is my great grandmother, uh, Agapita. Although she did, she was a very brave woman, so she passed on a lot of our culture to her children, my grandmother. But with language, it's the kind of thing where if you don't use it, it, it dies out. So my grandmother ended up never really speaking Lipan. In fact, she she spoke Spanish, learned English later in her life. Uh, the same with my mother. So as I was trying to learn this language and just becoming really frustrated with all of the holes in it and just my my inability to speak, I was like, oh, I just got to channel this frustration into a ghost story. So I was kind of almost haunted by, um, I'll call them the ghosts of the tragedies that my ancestors experienced. And in a way, the main character in The Whalebone Parrot wrestles with uh, her ability to remember her language and other things about the, the life and the culture that she once had before she was orphaned. And this plays a big role into the, the conflict of the story, too, uh, without giving away spoilers. Her sister is also Lipan, but her sister has chosen to completely embrace the colonial culture. And this, this does lead, lead up causing uh, supernatural problems for her. But long story short, that, that's kind of the historical context of, of where this story came from, from a personal part of me. <laughs> Right. One of the really interesting things that I saw you doing in that story were kind of the drop-offs and the use of language and sort of the the misremembering of language within the story. It was absolutely fascinating to to explore why the sort of the drop-offs, though, those moments when she just doesn't complete sentences. Yeah, and I, I have to say that it's another thing that I drew from my own experience. It's uh because there are certain even even now that we don't know. So if you want to to say something and you know what you want to say and yet you're struggling to find these words that are no longer there. I was trying to to put that experience as somebody trying to learn a, a dying language um, into the written medium with those drops off. So uh, thank you for noticing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's a beautiful story. So because this month I am focusing on horror writers uh, like yourself. So why horror? Specifically, sort of, what drew you to it in the first place? I know you write in other genres, but I sort of came to you specifically knowing you as a, a horror writer. So what is it about horror that drew you to it in the first place? And what is it about horror that lets you explore things in ways that you might not be able to in other genre fiction. Yeah, and I, I have to say, so as a fan, I'm probably a, mar a more hardcore horror fan than I am a horror writer. The vast majority of the, the stories that I read are either dark fantasy or, or horror fiction, short fiction. Uh, also, same with movies. I'd say my two fa favorite types of movies are either comedies or, or horror movies. So I do. I've watched a lot of good horror, a lot of bad horror I often thinking back to wondering how I got hooked on this is, is that as a child, I would just sit down and read like every Goosebump book that came out. Uh, also, scary stories to tell in the dark with the original illustrations. Uh, that was actually the the first book that just made me stay awake just with terror. But I noticed that as a writer, the stories that I write that tend to be more personal or, or draw from my own personal ghosts, I'll call them, thing, things that haunt me, things that uh, trouble me, they do tend to be within this horror genre. Uh, for example, there's a whalebone parrot, but the, the other story that's 
that came out this year that is either weird fiction or horror fiction, depending on how people classify it. It's called The Famine King. Um, it is in Mythic Delirium, uh, but it deals with, with issues of uh, mental illness, um, issues of trying to find a place where you feel you belong as an asexual person. So things that I do struggle with in my daily life, and it also has a native main character. And I, I almost think that the horror genre is just natural way of expressing these things that trouble me and putting them into writing in a way that's hopefully universal or at least connects with people who are experiencing similar things. Other than that, it's just really fun to scare people. <laughs> I have to say I enjoy, I enjoy when I make people cry, and I love when people say, oh, my gosh, that story was so creepy. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big horror fan because <laughs> uh, I get scared super easily. Oh, my gosh, I envy you. <laughs> Don't. I like All right. That's, a, that's probably a bad thing to envy. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's tough. Like, we're we're going to be, uh, as, as we discussed earlier, we're going to be talking about a horror film for our, our Halloween torture cinema um, on this Give Me Fanny show. And I literally can't watch movies. Even if they're really bad, I just am like, nope, I'm out. I'm good for go. I am a complete sucker for jump scares. I, I've had like really interesting conversations with people about it because the ones that scare me more are the ones that are based in the supernatural. Right, right. Versus the scientific horrors. You know, like 28 days later, I'm like, ah, that's fine. I'm good. But Night of the Living Dead, hell no. Because there's something about the supernatural, about the un, that sort of aspect of the unknown that just, scares the crap out of me. Yeah, yes. And I have to say, in, in terms of ghosts, when it comes with uh, Lithon Apache people, we're probably distinct from a lot of other Apache groups in the way that we traditionally conceptualize the, the afterlife, the underworld, and ghosts. First of all, we do think there is a, a type of underworld which is not, it's not universal for Apache groups. Uh, with ghosts, though, they're, there aren't good ghosts uh, for us traditionally. Ghosts are always, always bad things, uh, dangerous things, because I guess they kind of represent a break within the natural order, uh, the way things should be. People should die. They go to the underworld. Uh, so a lot of our death ceremony is related to keeping ghosts away from the living. Now, uh, th this isn't as practiced as much anymore because of a fusion almost with our culture, with a uh, Christian culture. There's a lot of uh, interesting kind of Christian lip on uh, belief systems out there. But traditionally, when you would bury someone, you would put all their belongings with them, put them in the earth and then walk away and never go back to that spot. So really, it is terrible when our burial grounds are disturbed from a spiritual perspective. Now, I have to say uh, a lot of so I, I'm uh, going to call myself a, a native skeptic. So one thing that I do like uh, struggle with is uh, a lot of people attribute like spirituality to Native Americans. And I have to be like, mm. but on the other hand, I really recognize the value of these traditional practices and the traditional knowledge. So I really do want to be respectful for them. And honestly, it would be great if I could have some if I could have some faith in some ghosts. I mean, 
I'm always looking for an opportunity to prove myself wrong. <laughs> so it, it's a, a balancing act almost. Right. Absolutely. Well, before we finish this out, where can we find you and where can we find your work? Oh, yes. Uh, so I'm most active in terms of social media on my Twitter account, which is Shining Comic, S-H-I-N-I-N-G-C-O-M-I-C. So it's the word shining and the word comic together. I actually created my Twitter when I was mostly using it to promote this webcomic that my partner T and I are doing. So that's why it has the word comic in the name, but I've kept it. It's become my own. And from there, you could actually get a link to my, my website that has all my published work um, in comics and short fiction. Awesome. So, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Darcy. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for speaking with me. I had a really fun time. So listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and make sure that you go check out Darcy's work. Make sure absolutely that you read The Whalebone Parrot. It's perfect for Halloween season. Yeah, so do that now, right after you finish listening to them. Bye-bye. listening to the show if you'd like to get in touch with us you can find us at skiffy and at gmail.com on twitter at skiffy and on facebook at the skiffy and show and on patreon at patreon.com slash skiffy and our intro and outro music comes from the launch by chronux you can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org